Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Droffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the honky-tonk man himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Rich. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate and, uh, it. And uh, later on... Yeah, I know. I, I will uh, eventually be hitting Rich with a guitar for those of you who got the Honky Tonk Man reference. <laughs> All right. Uh, first up here, we're going to start off the show with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where there's just too many news stories to go into a full discussion about, uh, but we want to touch on them, get Tom's take if they're in fact newsy or maybe just a little bit of the news cycle as it were. First up here, no surprise here that organizers for DEF CON announced that the annual Las Vegas conference, uh, usually scheduled in August, is canceled this year due to uncertainty about COVID-19. Uh, again, no real surprises there. Black Hat, which precedes DEF CON each year, is also canceled. Both will instead host online conferences, including research talks and social events, with founder Jeff Moss, a.k.a. Dark Tangent, uh, saying in a forum post that the 28th DEF CON will be known as Safe Mode. Tom, not necessarily news that this is canceled, but should, I guess, I guess news or not, should we be worried that all the hackers are going online instead of getting together in meat space? Isn't that where they are anyway? Ooh, that's true. I, I I do have a, a special kind of place in my heart for the fact that DEF CON finally got canceled before it was the year of VDI. So <laughs> take which, that what you will. Uh, yeah, gets uh, done first. Exactly. Yeah, um, I, I, this, is, this is a good move for the conference organizers. I mean, really, uh, in my radar, that was the last conference left standing. And considering all of the crazy political stuff that had been going on with the Las Vegas government, um, they, they received some pretty heavy pushes to get the conference canceled. So good on you guys, good on UBM, good on the DEF CON organizers. Um, let's just call 2020 a wash and we'll start over again next year. <laughs> that does seem – I'm interested to see because uh, especially um, – uh, Black Hat is, I'm sorry, DEFCON is, wait, which was the cool one? Black Hat's the cool one. Um, no, Def, DEFCON is the cool in-crowd one that happens down at Bally's where all the really elite hackers get to do RFID implants and hack the sprinkler systems and stuff like that. Black Hat's the businessy one. Gotcha. I, I'm excited to see because there's always such creativity around some of the different contests and stuff like that. So even moving to an mm-hmm. online space, I am excited to see uh, what comes out of that just from a, you know, when, when hackers are, are constrained, um, creation uh, flows from it. Usually sometimes destructive creation, but we'll see. <laughs> Next up here, Zoom has acquired Keybase, which makes a secure file sharing and collaboration tool. Uh, as soon as Keybase is incorporated, Zoom says they're going to offer end-to-end encrypted mode for all paid accounts, although free accounts will use that uh, transmission encryption that they've been using uh, to date. Keybase will become a subsidiary of Zoom, and Keybase co-founder Max Krohn will lead Zoom's security engineering team, reporting directly to CEO Eric Yoon. Zoom will work with Keybase to determine the fate of its existing products. E, that's not really reassuring. Uh, Keybase currently makes a key directory that maps social media identities to encryption keys for identity verification. Tom, at least in my book, Keybase always seemed like uh, a feature that was just kind of waiting to either become... I always just thought it was an open source project. I didn't even know it was a company. So news or not here on the acquisition. So the irony is, is that Keybase actually did use an open source project, PGP, to do a lot of their backend encryption stuff. This was just an easier way to authenticate people's PGP keys and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I've been a huge fan of Keybase for a while. As a matter of fact, they actually did a presentation a few years ago at Tech Field Day. If you go to the Tech Field Day website, you can look up the Keybase presentation. Um, the cryptocurrency thing was kind of a swing and a miss, and not just a swing and a miss, but we fell out of the batter's box and may have possibly hit ourselves <laughs> in the head with the bat. Um, 
Zoom picking up a security company is not a surprise. Maybe Keybase was a little bit of a surprise because you, you picked that company. But I think what really happened is the CEO of Zoom was sitting in a meeting and someone brought up the fact that their calls weren't encrypted end to end. And he says, get me some encryption. And they're like, but sir, we don't know. He goes, I don't care. Give me some encryption. So he bought a company. <laughs> is he is he wearing like a like a blue shirt with a white collar and like leather suspenders when he pounds his fist uh, to demand? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there's probably your favorite uh, Shutterstock, uh, you know, uh, free image that you can get. Basically, it's exactly how I envision it. <laughs> and we have a thumbnail. Uh, next up here, Microsoft began rolling out a reply all protection feature for Office 365 and Exchange Online. It's Seems like it's designed for larger organizations. The feature will detect 10 reply all emails to over 5,000 recipients within 60 minutes. So, Tom, I don't think we are going to be getting this anytime soon. Once triggered, users won't be able to reply all on the thread for four hours and will receive a notification that the conversation is too busy with too many people online. Uh, the the It basically recommends uh, just send to specific recipients, don't reply all, or maybe just cool off and, and wait just a minute here. So, Tom, uh, stopping reply all Mageddon's news are not here. Uh, this is something that probably had should have been built into Outlook from the '90s. Uh, this is essentially the the fix for the infamous, you know, Centralia, Pennsylvania reply all storm of the 1880s that's still going on <laughs> to this day. Some say, but no, this is a good feature, and I imagine what it is is that they're scaling it basically to fix a problem at Microsoft. And if it works, they're going to scale it down and give you a little bit of control because there are useful uh, applications for reply all. Um, I can think of two of them. And in exactly both of those cases, you can use them. But otherwise, reply all should never be used. As a matter of fact, if you are about to hit the reply all button on an email, you should go open another Slack channel. <laughs> all right. Next up here, uh, in other Microsoft property news, LinkedIn united its LinkedIn events and live products into LinkedIn virtual events. This lets users live stream to a LinkedIn page or event and supports third-party stream integrations with Restream, Wirecast, StreamYard, and SocialLive as named partners, and it looks like they're going to be trying to integrate with others going forward. Stream content can be saved on a new video tab in LinkedIn pages, which I guess wasn't a thing in 2020 before now. Uh, LinkedIn Live was always a little confusing, and linked whenever they roll out features, I never know where they're located. Seems like this is a smart way to couple together two things that people weren't using a ton. News or not here, Tom? This isn't really news, but I think the bigger story is the fact that LinkedIn is really starting to embrace video creators because as people have uh, you know jumped on the the we can't really call it bandwagon at this point it's more like a flatbed semi truck <laughs> of uh, video content creation in in this time that we live in. Um, LinkedIn wants to be the home for that, and hey, I am totally for that if it means I have to spend less time on Facebook. Hi, Facebook audience, love you guys. Yeah, the, but the whole live thing to me is has always seemed a little bit of a kludge because, you know, I, I mean, we've looked at it for Gestalt IT and uh, for Tech Field Day uh, to, to kind of host content like that. And the, at least the live component was like invite only. And it was yeah. never really, there was no transparency about like, oh, is it just a verification that you're a real business or something like that? There was a 10 minute limit on videos that you could upload. And it just seemed like it was half baked. I hope this is, again, like you're saying, uh, a, a recognition that, um, hey, the kids like this and the kids do the business, maybe we should have this too. Yeah, this was a square peg into a circular hole, basically. It uh, was uh, you know, trying to get everything to fit together. Over, under, and by 2021, that we'll see ephemeral LinkedIn posts. <laughs> I'm really betting under. Okay. Please, under. 
Please, Please, Hunter. Please. And last up here on News or Not, Backblaze has offered its B2 cloud storage to consumers for a while now. It's kind of been uh, uh, seen as you know, kind of a budget-friendly alternative to something like uh, Amazon S3. Uh, the S3-compliant offering looks to be targeting businesses now with a public beta of S3-compliant APIs, which weren't available until now. Backblaze is trying to differentiate with simple pricing, offering a half a cent per gigabyte per month for data stored and one cent per gigabyte to download the data with a, a very generous one gigabyte downloaded free per day. So you save that penny. Uh, news or not here, Tom? Not really news. This is for the customers who are Backblaze uh, clients who but really want to use Amazon. This is Backblaze holding off the, the drain to get to just using S3 directly. I could see this being useful for really like small business, maybe like media, uh, uh, you know, small business, media companies, stuff like that, like photographers, videographers that have been using it kind of as prosumer kind of backup. And now, you know, they need to mirror something to a NAS or something like that. And this just makes that easier uh, and, and helps integrate with other, with other apps and stuff like that. So yeah, interesting. I don't know if this w- certainly isn't going to win over uh, any large organizations just on the face of that announcement no. alone. Yeah. First up here, that uh, our full our uh, larger discussion here, uh, security news here, Tom. You uh, we have Security Field Day coming up uh, this week, uh, so I thought this would be interesting. Uh, Eidhoven University of Technology researcher Bjorn Rutenberg, I'm sure I pronounced all those words correctly, demonstrated ThunderSpy, a vulnerability on some Thunderbolt-equipped Windows and Linux PCs, although interestingly not macOS, it seems, that would allow an attacker to bypass logins. The attack works on Thunderbolt-enabled devices made before 2019 and bypasses the security levels feature that can prevent access from untrusted devices or force a Thunderbolt port to only use USB connectivity uh, and also act as a display port, but turning off basically the PCI. Uh, functionality of that. ThunderSpy requires accessing the Thunderbolt controller, which often requires removing the computer's backplate. In fact, I think it pretty much does in every instance, and flashing the firmware with an SPI programmer device to remove all security stage, uh, which the researcher said took about two minutes if you knew what you were doing. Intel's kernel, kernel direct memory access protection prevents the attack, but Ruttenberg said that the feature isn't standard, isn't supported by devices made before 2019, and that major OEMs like Dell do not appear to offer it yet, or at least consistently across all of their product lines, even you know new stuff made in 2020. So Tom, give me some context for uh, you know how bad is this you know kind of evil made? I think is how I've seen it kind of characterized vulnerability um, in the grand scheme of you know security vulnerabilities here. Well, if you can bypass all of the security on a device by plugging into a port and just going hog wild, I mean that it's bad. There was a an Apple vulnerability that did something very similar to get around File Vault a couple of years ago, um, and that was bad enough. But my biggest problem is, is you've got you've got two problems here. So look at both hands uh, over here. You've got um, if I don't have physical access to my machine, machine and haven't physically secured it, um, I got a problem. So, okay, well, that's something I can deal with. But over here, you've got a fix. It's been here for a year. It's optional and nobody's installing it and nobody's implementing it. And you're probably not likely to see that anytime soon because it adds a whole bunch of extra complexity to things. Hmm. So nobody wants to fix it. And I have to keep my laptop on me at all times and not plug random things into it and hope that nobody does the same because all it takes is two minutes. And let's be fair. You've heard me tell stories. I can distract you for two minutes. Um, (laughs) I think this is going to get patched out. And I also think it's kind of funny that this is a Windows vulnerability and you don't really see this in Mac OS, uh, file system drivers and stuff like that. But more importantly, I think what you're going to see is this is going to become a new way to get um, attack vectors going on. Now, the good news of this is because the entire world is locked down, 
people should be six feet away from your Mac at all times or your Windows <laughs> PC. So it shouldn't really matter right now. But boy, as soon as the quarantine's lifted, look out. People are going to be running around with rogue USB devices and plugging them anywhere they can find. No, they're not. Um, this, honestly, may be the best thing for security vulnerabilities in general is the fact that if it requires physical access to a machine, we have a built-in time window for people to be able to deploy fixes to prevent that from happening. Now, unless my kids get really creative, I think I'm going to be safe from this one for a while. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, I know a lot of, you know, uh, especially with events like Security Field Day, uh, you know, uh, in, in the before times when we would fly delegates in uh, to different events and stuff like that, you know, there was some genuine concern about um, and any instance of having to, you know, put a, a laptop or something like that, um, you know, uh, on your, you know, the bag that would go in the plane, why can't you, not, on, not your carry-on, like to check your laptop or something like that on a trip or something like that because you know you kind of didn't know if theoretically oh you know there's there's some sort of security concern we need to look at your laptop that kind of stuff um now that definitely makes it uh, a much bigger concern if you have something like this out there and it's not even that you know you you think you can okay i can i can disable the ability for the system to do that by getting to the firmware uh, of course if you can access if you can if you found a way to rewrite the firmware, it's like bad for every system component. But because a Thunderbolt pull is essentially a PCI Express lane, uh, an external one, uh, and that kind of bypasses a lot of tradi more traditional buses and security measures and stuff like that that you would have on a PC on a physical level. Um, it, I do think that is an interesting consequence of, hey, we want this super fast, low latency input. You know, the way we do that is getting around all the stuff that uh, that <laughs> kind of the checks and balances within the system. Uh, that would otherwise protect from this. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up here, we have uh, some. Uh, it's another interesting security news. It's it's not depressing, Tom. So that's that's a good thing. Um, Intel and Microsoft released details on a new malware detection project called Static Malware as Image Network Analysis, or Stamina. The project takes a binary input file and converts it into a stream of raw pixel data, basically using black and white pixels uh, based on the binary values of 0 1. The one-dimensional stream of pixels is then turned into a 2D image by assigning a width just based on the overall pixel size of the file. So it says, okay, if this is you know 500 pixels wide, we're going to make it 30, you know, each row is 32 pixels wide or something like that. The, then a pre-trained deep neural network uh, trained on 2.2 million infected portable executable files scans the images and was able to achieve 99.07% accuracy in identifying and classifying the malware with about a 2.58% false positive rate. The other interesting thing is they found that when they downsize these images, because this actually can, if you have a lot of binary code generate a pretty big uh, image file that can take a while to scan they found that actually if they reduced the resolution it the system was just as effective so it was literally training that model to look for a specific kind of grayscale uh that would equate to malware uh, microsoft says the, the system does work best on smaller files uh which kind of makes sense i, I think in the way you would do this is maybe in some sort of uh you know uh, scanning incoming files into an organization or something like that not setting it loose on giant applications but tom Interesting to see kind of, uh, you know, image processing is kind of the oldest use case for neural networks, deep learning, that kind of stuff, Turning, finding a way to turn malware into an image to more effectively kind of look for it. It's interesting. I mean, it's definitely playing to the strengths of, of, the, uh, of the software. The problem that I have with it is, you know, what happens when you change the way that malware is delivered? What happens when you change the signatures that cause it to fire? Um, and, and again, converting it to an image isn't going to necessarily equate to a signature. But I mean, we fought this battle 25 years ago with antivirus. It's why we have heuristics and behavior-based things. And, you know, I talked to companies at RSA and at, at Black Hat last year that were talking about, you know, we can't even do that. We have to look even deeper and, and look at, you know, outcome-based outcome 
based behavior of the of the malware itself. Um, okay, it's great, and, and and ultimately this is where I'm I'm falling down on the side of this whole AI ML neural net stuff, whatever. Cool, you made a thing that can do a random thing. We also taught bears how to ride bicycles. I have yet to be able to go to my local department store and buy a bear riding a bicycle, not like a toy, an actual physical bear on a unicycle or a bicycle or a tricycle. Just because you can do a cool thing doesn't mean it's practical in any reasonable sense of the word. So until they operationalize this and turn it into some kind of massive cloud scale neural net malware scanning program with remediation, kudos for finding something to do with your neural net researchers, guys. <laughs> it, it is interesting, yeah, that they really the strength of this is converting that data set into something that the the algorithm can more readily uh, identify. Um, I do think I, down the road, I do think that that it is interesting that it is not necessarily uh, the, the collection of all that data. Like it, it is the fact that it is an image itself, regardless of to a certain extent, the resolution that the system can still be effective. And I think maybe in some weird way, it, like if you could Again, find a way to operationalize that. That has some interesting implications. But yeah, until we have that, um, uh, you know, uh, this is this is trained in a very specific image recognition data set. Until we have that more general purpose learning uh, that we keep hearing about, and that is, of course, extremely difficult to implement. Um, that's when the you know a lot of the the quote unquote potential of these kind of systems can really be set loose. Um, I, I think it's it. I'm interested to see what else they will do to operationalize this. Uh, and maybe it'll be something that we never see. You know, Microsoft does this as some sort of, you know, uh, uh, Azure malware, you know, filtering or something like that down the road. And we never see it, but we're, we're getting less malware. Um, I do, yeah, I do wonder how it will operate, though, uh, with things it hasn't seen before. We shall see. Speaking of things that we're seeing right now, Google announced that it would bring its collective communications products under the oversight of VP and GM of G Suite, Javier Saltero. This now includes Messages, Duo, and the phone app for Android that goes along with Google Meet and Google Chat that were already part of G Suite. Speaking to The Verge, Saltero said that there's no immediate plans to change or integrate any of Google's messaging apps because, I guess we can't ask for too many good things in 2020, and that the company believes people choose Google's messaging products for specific purposes. Saltero joined Google back in October and is previously the co-founder of Accompli and the VP of Microsoft's Office Group. So, you know, definitely kind of is in that productivity space. Tom, I, Google's messaging efforts have kind of been an open joke in terms of they come up with something maybe kind of cool, kill it or alter it. No one struggling for adoption in a lot of different ways outside of Gmail, basically. And ever since the death of uh, what GTalk uh, back in the day, does this give you hope that there is maybe a plan now <laughs> for <laughs> Google to figure out how to do messaging? It seems like they're making interesting strides with Google Meet, uh, at least right now, given the situation. Here's all the hope that I have for this, like right, right here. I know you can't <laughs> see it. It's really, really small. This does. This is nothing. This is reshuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic. Okay, Google. Sorry, I, I gotta, I gotta be heart to heart here for you just a little bit. Um, stop trying to do things your way and listen to your customers. I know you said that you listen to your customers. Well, people pick our messaging platforms based on different things. Yeah, and Slack has the ability to call people on their on a, on a phone-to-phone call. Do you know why? Because customers asked for that. Hey, can we just do a virtual call as opposed to that? You know what Google would have done? They would have released a different app with a slightly different icon with a name that's slightly different, like Slack calling, and would have made you download that. And then 
you know, eight months from now, they'll kill it. And then they'll roll that feature into a completely different product that nobody's getting any hits on. You got to remember, this is the company that built their own social network and failed. Guys, quit screwing this up. So the one thing I will say, not in Google's defense, but it seems like this is hard for almost every, or at least I'm looking at Microsoft. I'm thinking of Skype and thinking of the giant and like basically open field that they had in kind of this whole VoIP, you know, uh, internet messaging kind of landscape. And that they found zero. No, admittedly, they were not the original owners of Skype, and other organizations have done a bad job with Skype as well. Microsoft is not the exception here, but uh, I'm looking at you, eBay. But um, the the idea of for whatever reason, it is hard to systematically uh, integrate. Whether it's you have different business units that have compelling needs, and they're you know, like they're saying, they have multiple customers using things for multiple uh, use cases. I do get the feeling, though, that maybe Google Meet is their their which is basically just rebranded Google Hangouts, which is just re- basically rebranded GChat, um, is maybe the way that they're thinking they're going to kind of I, I don't even want to use the phrase unify, but put more invest more in that basket. Whether that will be successful or not, at least the branding is better than Allo, which was a thing that is now dead. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's not like it's iMessage or anything, right? <laughs> They're trying. Hey, they have uh, RCS, so that's going to magically work out. and It's going to be great. Uh, and finally here, our last discussion story that I want to dig into, some interesting news from Dell EMC. Uh, they launched PowerStore, a new unified block and file storage array uh, that basically cleans up a little bit of their confusion in their mid-range product lineup. If you haven't been following, uh, you know, kind of the, that mid-range, we've seen them a bunch at Tech Field Day. And you know, it, it, that question always came up in every single uh, presentation. You know, what am I supposed to use SC? What am I supposed to use Unity? What am I supposed to use Extreme IO for? It's not exactly clear. There was a lot of overlap between those lines. And now they're going to be all under that PowerStore brand. And it's, this isn't just we're rebranding Extreme IO into PowerStore. This is a, a brand new product line uh, with, you know, kind of a migration strategy in place. This now puts Dell EMC in line with a lot of their other storage rivals in offering a single OS, all flash product line uh, with basically only HPE among the big players uh, kind of maintaining disparate lines with their Primera three-part and nimble lineups uh the uh, power store lineup now uses a typical dual controller uh, dual controller arrangement with five models offering the same capacity range just differing on the number of compute cores and memory basically allowing you to get greater performance uh with the same capacity across all the lines effective capacity is up to 1.536 terabytes i'm sorry 1536 terabytes that is a little bit bigger uh, and uh, both use a super fast NVMe tier and a slower SAS SSD tier as well. The array also features the ESXi hypervisor running on a bare metal controller and PowerStore OS that runs as a VM inside of it with the ability for applications in other VMs alongside that PowerStore OS VM, uh, essentially kind of bringing apps to, uh, you know, letting you run applications directly on the storage array. Another kind of big trend that we're seeing along with this kind of uh, single OS all flash strategy that we've seen among the storage providers. We've also seen companies effectively, you know, hey, well, let's bring the compute to the storage, make that pipeline as uh, as less have as less latency as possible and increase efficiency there. We've seen Co- um, Cohesity do this to a number of extent. Um, I'm trying to remember it was, oh, the company that's putting ARM controllers on storage arrays. Now I cannot think of their name. I apologize. It'll be in the show notes. But Tom, I mean, Dell EMC is a giant in this space. They're already their kind of their mid-range storage was a bit of a benchmark. Does that for for that larger market as a whole? Where does this now now unifying? 
how do you I guess how do you compete when you're Dell EMC and now all of a sudden the decision making is a lot easier uh, in that mid range where you know that's a, that's a big meat and potatoes market. It is, and and honestly, I mean, we just got a story about Google where they can't figure out you know, they can't find their ass with a map and a GPS <laughs> and figuring out how to unify product lines because we'll just keep the same names or change a couple of them and it won't really matter. And then you look on the other side and Dell, Dell EMC specifically, you know, EMC for years made their bones off of the fact that we have, we have uh, an array for people who need to store this and we have an array for people who need to store 10% less, but need that. And like, you know, you, their catalog was like the Sears catalog. And now what do we have? It's all streamlined. Why? Because people don't like that crap. So Google, why don't you call your buddies over at Dell EMC? They're just down the road in Santa Clara. I know you guys drive down from Mountain View. (laughs) This is simple. It's easy. They're making things easy for customers. That's good because then instead of trying to figure out exactly which custom bespoke refrigerator size storage array you need to buy from the company, you just give them a a list of specs. Okay, we need this much flash. We need this much uh, nearline SAS build me something. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, what, what's the brand name on it? We don't care. It's all one line now. That's what you need. You need to simplify and you need to walk into your customer's thing without a Sears catalog. You need a one pager and go, if you need small, this one. If you need medium, this one. If you need big, we have those two. And we'll talk about that later because you're more likely to get people really engaged and excited about what you're doing. And I can't believe that I just said storage is exciting. <laughs> If you don't try to lead with, we can build anything you need, but you won't recognize the name that's on it. Yeah, and 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 both to Dell's credit, Dell EMC's credit, and to HPE, you know, having these disparate lines, a lot of that was a result of acquisitions over time. I mean, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, especially with Dell and EMC coming together, uh, definitely left some overlap in that market, and they've just kind of been sorting that out. But this is definitely this isn't just hey, we're we're being consistent with our branding. This is. Uh, you know, we put in the R and D and kind of created this uh, this master product that can kind of suit all of these mid range needs. Um, I'm curious to see HPE has done that uh, on more of the services side. They're moving to a services kind of model anyway, so I think they care less about being consistent with that. And they're just you know they just want you to sign up for a storage subscription down the line. And who care again? Who cares what the name of it is on there? Uh, Dell EMC still going uh, kind of with a I don't want to call it an old school approach, but a on more of an on prem approach to this. I do also really think that that this kind of um, running your apps in your storage array or, or the ability to run code, I guess. I don't even want to say apps because that makes it sound trivial, but that ability to run workflows and stuff like that directly on that storage. I don't know how well customers are going to adopt to that right away, but leads to a lot of uh, you know interesting implications uh, for them down the road. And we'll see if other, like I said, uh, we're, we're just starting to see this trend creep up right now. There's not a ton of people doing it, but I think it's going to become more common, uh, especially if Dell EMC, I mean, when they do something and it works, uh, everyone else tends to uh, try and do their own version of it. Just want to remind everybody also that uh, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, I'm fairly certain that's going to be uh, discussed at uh, Tech Field Day presents Dell Technologies Power Up Portfolio. You can check out techfieldday.com for some of that details for the live stream coming up on that in just a little bit. Um, but uh, so check that out, and uh, they'll be doing some deep dives on that for sure. Um, we're just going over the news. They will have obviously all of the uh, architectural details there. But the one detail I do have is that this is about the end for the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Uh, where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? 
Well, this week you can check me out doing security field day where we've got great presentations starting tomorrow from uh, VMware Pass Solutions Juniper and a new company, Tempered. You're going to want to tune in and watch those. Head over to techfieldday.com, click on the link for security field day, check out the times and locations. Do note that those times are in Pacific because Pacific is the one true time zone. Um, but you can also catch my coverage of all of those presentations and several more things if you head over to the website, gestaltit.com. Hey, that's where you can find my stuff as well. You can also find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. And hey, if you uh, want to, head on over to uh, youtube.com slash IT video if you're not already there watching this live. Uh, and check out our new video series that we're doing called Checksum. Uh, we had our first video up this week about why NVIDIA bought Mellanox, a subject near and dear to my heart, and I hope it will be to you. So check that out, share it. Uh, remember to subscribe to the channel and do like button bells, notifications, hit buttons, all that good stuff. We always appreciate it. And you can find us on YouTube every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week with the Gestalt IT Rundown. Uh, You can also check out our podcast feed. Uh, Just search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your podcatcher of choice. That just about does it for me, for myself, for Tom Pollingsworth, for all of us here in the Gestalt IT family. Here's wishing you and yours to have the most super sparkly of days.